The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long Yi Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long Yi supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long Yi has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long Yi products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. There are certain subsectors that are very popular, and then there are others that are almost orphaned, maybe because people are concerned based on prior experiences a decade ago in the clean tech space. So you're investing exclusively in solar thermal and biofuels <laughs> companies then? Is that, is that what you're saying? We, uh, we are certainly students of history and are absolutely looking to uh, learn from what has worked, what has not worked in the past, and then take a really data-driven approach to the investments that we make. Unpacking the multifaceted, very ambitious climate strategy from Microsoft. A conversation with Brandon Middaw, the director of Microsoft's Climate Innovation Fund. This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan, a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So in January 2020, Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft, announced that the company had set a target of becoming carbon negative, not net zero, but negative by 2030. There was a ton of insight contained within this announcement, so much so that I actually think much of it went unnoticed. Microsoft has been diligently tracking its own emissions footprint, scopes one through three, which is important, for years. It has also implemented an internal carbon price to help prioritize mitigation measures. It's been one of the biggest and most innovative purchasers of renewable energy among large end users. It's been an early buyer of carbon removal, starting to kickstart that market. And it's been extremely transparent about what it's learning along the way. And as part of that net negative commitment, Microsoft launched a billion-dollar climate innovation fund among the largest corporate funds dedicated to climate change in the world. Brandon Middaw, this week's guest, is the director of that fund. We talked about the fund itself, but also more broadly about Microsoft's climate strategy, which I think, at least, is one of the most well-thought-out and comprehensive of any large enterprise. For full disclosure, the first investment that Microsoft made out of this climate innovation fund was a fund investment in Energy Impact Partners, where I work. So we work closely with Brandon and her team, trying to find pathways to decarbonize the energy and technology landscape. But they're on to something bigger than just us. And there's a lot to it. So there is a lot to unpack. With no further ado, my conversation with Brandon. Brandon, welcome. So happy to finally have you here. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. All right. Let's uh, let's start by talking about Microsoft's carbon footprint in the first place. And then we're going to talk about how Microsoft is going to eliminate it both in the future and in the in the past. Um, but let's start with where are where do how much emissions is Microsoft responsible for and where does it come from generally? Yeah. So as we look back at the goals that we set coming into this decade, 
Um, in January 2020, we took stock of where we are, uh, including all of our scope one, two, and three emissions. And what we found is that out of a total emissions footprint of around 16 million tons in that year, about three quarters of that was scope three. And so that was a meaningful um, expansion of the way that we think about the meaning of our own carbon footprint, how we measure it, how we account for it, and so on. For, for those who are unfamiliar with carbon accounting, scope one, our direct emissions, for Microsoft, these are a tiny fraction of our overall footprint. Scope two, the electricity we consume, that's a more meaningful portion. And like I said, the, the vast majority, when we actually look at it all up of that 16 million, three quarters of that is in our supply chain, downstream use of devices, that sort of thing. Which is interesting because intuitively you think of, uh, you know, Microsoft, you would think scope two being energy consumption because you have so many data centers would be a big chunk. But what you're saying is it is a reasonably big chunk, but it's just dwarfed by scope three, which is also interesting because... Uh, Microsoft produces hardware, like a fair amount of hardware and gets shipped out to people and things like that. But, you know, I guess if I had just been guessing ahead of time, I would have guessed way overwhelmed by scope two. Yeah. So scope two is the largest portion of our own um, direct, you know, scope, scope one and scope two emissions. And that really is a reflection of our cloud infrastructure, in particular, the data centers that we that we run, which we um, are in the process of transitioning to 100% directly sourced uh, renewable power by 2025. Um, but there are other parts of our operations, in particular outside our own walls with our suppliers. And one of the really interesting things for me coming from the energy space is that even beyond our scope to electricity to power our operations, the majority of those supply chain and downstream emissions are also energy related. They're either the electricity that our suppliers are using or the transportation and logistics, uh, energy and fuels. Um, so it, it, energy really does represent a, a huge portion, both on the scope two and scope three side. Yeah, I guess that was going to be my next question, but maybe you just answered it. So on scope, so scope three is basically things you buy and things you sell. Uh, and how those things are are taken to customers and used. So it's predominantly energy within Scope 3. It's just the energy embedded in the things that you buy and the energy embedded in delivering the things that you sell. Yeah, that's the biggest, that's the biggest um, portion of it. And if you think about it in terms of prioritization, you know, from our perspective, how do we, how do we tackle this problem? Uh, it starts with the electricity and the, per, you know, the goods and services that we're buying. Uh, and then you also have embodied carbon. And then way down on the list are smaller, smaller activities that represent a much more uh, modest portion of the overall carbon footprint, like employee commuting or business travel and so on. All right. So that's taking stock. I guess one other question on that. I, I don't know if you were involved in it at all, but having maybe heard from the folks who are involved in doing those calculations and continuing to do them on an ongoing basis, and we hear a lot about the sort of carbon accounting world, do you have a sense of how big a challenge it has been for Microsoft to do that type of carbon accounting to measure your emissions, especially with scope one, scope two, and scope three included? 
Is it like a big undertaking with a whole team associated with it that does this annual review or is it a pretty automated process now? You know, that is that is an area we've been uh, working on since 2012. So we actually, our carbon journey started almost a decade ago at this point with a commitment to be carbon neutral on a scope one and two basis. At that time, with the use of uh, carbon offsets, which are I'll get to in a minute, you know, different from what we're using today. And so we've had a, a, a bit of a head start in that sense in terms of inventorying the activities across all of our business groups, across all of our facilities globally in more than 100 countries. And I'll say it is, it is no small feat to really get that transparency, get that tracking and, and accountability across all of a global organization like ours. It's one of the things that has led us in the last year and a half since we set out our decade commitments to really focus first on what is the meaning of net zero? You know, what, what does it encompass from a scope one, two, three perspective? And what counts in terms of uh, the other side of the ledger in terms of carbon removal? And we've really um, stepped up our commitment to both getting getting the accounting in place, getting the measurement in place to have visibility, and then using that to inform a true net zero strategy, which has to include reduction and then removal of the things that cannot be reduced. Yeah, my feeling is that there's, I don't know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks who are out there sort of developing solutions to more granularly and accurately measure an enterprise's carbon emissions. And I think that's important but at the same time, I think there's diminishing returns on precision here because what matters at the end of the day, more than the precise measurement, is it exactly 16 million tons or is it 17 million tons or 15 million tons? What matters more than that is what you do with that and the strategy to remove and reduce all of it, right? And, you know, so I'd rather spend a lot of time and effort and resources on that latter stuff and less on the like precise measurement. But I think the measurement is an enabling condition for taking action. And so that's one of the reasons that it is such a, an important focus today. And it's, and it's one of our focus areas today as well. Um, really, because you can't, you can't manage what you're not measuring. So we, we start with that. We start with that visibility, the carbon accounting, the carbon math, and then build on the reduction and the removal strategy on top of that. Right. Okay. So Microsoft does this big accounting, starting with scope one and scope two in 2012, ultimately including scope three. And in January of 2020, uh, makes this big announcement, which includes a number of measures within it to reduce emissions, um, but also includes the launch of this new climate innovation fund that you our director within. So let's focus on the Climate Innovation Fund. Give me the the quick story. What's why why create the fund um, as part of the broader Microsoft climate agenda? And what is the high-level ambition? So around the time we were setting our 2030 goals, we were, as I said, taking stock of where things stood, figuring out what was what was going to be needed for Microsoft to make our contribution in the transition to net zero. Around that time, our CFO, Amy Hood, who receives investment proposals and new ideas from every corner of the world um, on a regular basis, you know, she really saw a couple of these in the sustainability theme and said, 
well, what should we, what should we be doing on a, on a capital front? And simultaneously in our business operations, our teams, um, my team, other teams, were really seeing a need for capital beyond our four walls to accelerate the type of solutions that we need to buy at scale. And so between those two things, we recognized that for Microsoft to make this transition, it's not enough to do that internally. We're going to need to be able to buy solutions that may not exist at scale today. And that's really where the concept of the Climate Innovation Fund originated. And so tell me, give me the the mandate for the fund, because I think a lot of folks heard the original announcement and said, oh, this is a this is a venture capital fund, um, which it is in part, right? But it's a little bit more than that as well. That's right. So when we took a look at the need in the market, we first set out to say, well, what are the gaps in the marketplace that mainstream capital is not serving? And then what are the solutions? Uh, you know, those of us who've worked in climate technology for some time recognize that there's a portfolio of solutions you need to have. And so first we looked from a science-based target setting perspective, what technologies are necessary to achieve the commitments that we're laying out. Then we mapped those in terms of what's receiving funding, what's not, and what's most important to Microsoft's operations, to our customers and the industry around us. So I guess a couple of questions on that. Where are the gaps in the market? Because this is obviously like this is a rapidly evolving market. And I would say to the extent that there were gaps a few years ago, many of them are rapidly closing. So is your sense that today, you know, close to two years hence from making that decision, do the gaps that you identified then still exist today or is capital arriving to fill them? It's almost like you're a fly on the wall in some of the discussions we've been having, Shale. Almost as if. <laughs> almost as if. So um, you're exactly right. The gaps are evolving and the market's evolving. I mean, the market has, has changed so much since the day we set out. What remains the same is that climate change is a $50 trillion investment problem. And at the macro level, we still need to mobilize more capital towards this. But the specific technologies that we set out, uh, the, the specific gaps in the market, they've changed from a technology perspective. They haven't changed as much in terms of the type of capital that's missing. We still see uh, early project finance, um, early scaling capital at the intersection of software and hardware in particular to be a gap. Um, but specific technologies within that, some of those are receiving the lion's share of venture and growth equity. There are certain subsectors that are very popular. And then there are others that are almost orphaned, maybe because people are uh, concerned based on prior experiences a decade ago in the clean tech space, or because uh, it's just a longer capital cycle to bring those solutions to scale. So you're investing exclusively in solar thermal and biofuels <laughs> companies then? Is that, that we uh, we are certainly students of history and are absolutely looking to uh, learn from what has worked, what has not worked in the past, and then take a really data-driven approach to um, the investments that we make so that we're managing our risk. It's Im it's important to call out that our our climate innovation fund is not making grants. We're making financial investments on behalf of Microsoft. And in fact, it's one of three ESG funds that we manage. The other two being a regional affordable housing fund 
and a national racial equity fund as well. So uh, can you give an example of like a gap you've identified that remains in the market, I guess, from a technology perspective? You mentioned early stage project finance, which is, I totally agree, remains a huge open gap and has, hasn't been solved yet, I don't think. But um, from a technology perspective, where do you see open space? Certainly in the early project finance category, the um, the investment we're working on with Climeworks is a great example of that. And so that's a case where um, Climeworks is a direct air capture company. They have built a facility in Iceland that is capturing CO2 out of ambient air and permanently storing it underground in a, in a basalt formation. So this is an example of the type of technology that while it's received venture capital funding to be developed in the lab and, and so on, really um, often comes up against a wall when it comes to going to the markets and getting some of the early, early scaling capital for specific infrastructure assets. Right. And so that's actually maybe a good segue um, to something that Microsoft has been doing in tandem that is sort of one degree removed, I guess, from the Climate Innovation Fund, but seems closely linked, which is being one of the couple largest purchasers in the world of carbon removals. So let's you you alluded to it before. You used to buy offsets, now you buy something different. And the something different that you were buying is carbon removals. So we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but uh maybe briefly describe why carbon removal and why why is that different from offsets? And then I'm interested to talk about sort of how that fits into the broader Microsoft climate strategy. Yeah, certainly. So so like I mentioned a moment ago. Our, our overall carbon strategy is first to reduce our own emissions and, the, and, and those in our supply chain, and then to remove the emissions that we can't reduce in, in our own scope one to three. And so the carbon removal strategy becomes a really critical part of our, of our pathway to net zero. Um, for us, the, the real transition in the last uh, couple of years here has been the transition to emphasize uh, negative emissions specifically. Net negative solutions, whether nature-based or engineered, that are actually pulling CO2 out of the air and serving as a carbon sink to offset the ongoing emissions. These are different from avoided emissions, which are uh, a form of reduction elsewhere in someone else's activities. Right, so just to reiterate that, there is a carbon cycle that occurs, you know, whether or not humans spew a bunch of additional CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, what what the traditional carbon offsets were doing, whether they be from, I don't know, renewable energy additions or, uh, you know, avoided deforestation or whatever it might be, is basically saying, we will pay someone to do something that otherwise would have created emissions and instead won't. So we will no longer put a new thing into the carbon cycle. And what removal or net negative emissions is all about is saying, we'll just take carbon out of the carbon cycle. We will remove it entirely, either by capturing it through ambient air or, as you said, nature-based approaches, things like that. And there, it's it's this like emerging field where it's basically, you know, at the large scale, it's basically Microsoft, Stripe, and Shopify that have emerged as sort of big big um, purchasers there. And one of the things that I have really appreciated about all three is the transparency, which is, you know, you guys, as well as Stripe and Shopify, have been really transparent about everything that you're buying, what you're paying for it, 
how you evaluated the individual solutions and that you're taking a portfolio approach. So you're going to pay an order of magnitude more for certain removals than others. And here's why we're doing it and so on. And so is that, that's presumably intended to sort of catalyze the rest of the world to be able to do the same thing. Exactly. So it's particularly important that we and other early movers in this space share the lessons learned because what's happening is we, the world, is effectively needing to build this this new market from scratch in a vastly accelerated time frame. So when you look at the the solution set of building this pathway to net zero, you know, first you have to define the meaning of what zero, what net zero means. Second, you have to measure and really understand where things stand. But then third, you need the markets to provide the solutions to, to actually make that transition. And when it comes to negative emissions, when it comes to carbon removal, what we and some of the other early buyers you've mentioned have seen in the market is that the, the scale's just not there at today. And so what we really need to do is accelerate that market beyond what just the forces of supply and demand are going to provide. That's why we see it as a relevant uh, a relevant investment area for us. That's why we see it as an important early purchasing area for us as well. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grids battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. Let's come back to the Climate Innovation Fund for a minute. Um, I'm sure we have a ton of listeners who are interested to hear the sort of contours of your investment profile. So what types of investments do you look for? What types of companies, technologies? Do you like to find a linkage back into Microsoft? Should it be something that can directly reduce Microsoft's own carbon footprint? Or uh, is it a little bit broader than that? So when we came out of the gate in in forming this fund and, and launching it in 2020, what we defined were four key, four key principles. And these are really designed to describe the type of impact we're looking to have. First, we define that we're looking to have climate impact by 2030. We're investing in the types of technologies, the types of solutions that'll bring that transformational uh, decarbonization to market on a this decade timeframe as opposed to uh, multiple decades in the future. Second, 
we articulated that we're focusing on underfunded markets, the gaps I mentioned earlier. Third, we're emphasizing solutions that also have a positive climate equity or social co-benefit associated with that. And lastly, we are looking for areas of shared alignment, things where we can bring relevant insight to the, to the table, where there's some alignment to Microsoft's core business or that of our customers that allows us to have insight into the end market so that we can be accelerating these decarbonization solutions and they can accelerate our decarbonization pathway as well. Let's, let's give an example or two. Name, name, you know, a favorite. Maybe everybody, every portfolio means every, every company in everybody's portfolio is a favorite, but name one or two that exemplify, I guess, what you're describing, investments that you've already made that, that fit those criteria. Great. Yeah, certainly. So on the venture side, on the early stage innovation front, We've made investments in uh, offerings like Carbon Marketplace Innovation, NCX, which was formerly called Sylvia Terra. We've invested in IoT solutions, um, Acclima, a mobile air quality IoT company that measures emissions and pollutants of, of all sorts, CO2, but, but also local pollutants. And then we've also invested across um, other themes around embodied carbon, circular economy with investments uh, like uh, uh, investment in Replay, which is a circular economy digital platform. Um, those are a few examples. A few more would include uh, carbon utilization. We've invested in Opus 12, um, as well as other, other early stage innovation and technologies across carbon, water, and waste. On the project finance side, the Climeworks transaction is the best example of the type of impact we're looking to have by combining combining the fund with our, our fee, which is what funds are on purchasing. And so in both cases, whether it's early stage innovation or later stage deployment, what we're looking to do is find the innovators with a solution where our capital can make a difference and we can uh, you know, bring insight to the table that's useful to them as well. One thing I've been thinking about lately is these other uh, adjacent sectors to climate that are not exclusively about greenhouse gas emissions, but are impacted by climate change and have all these other ecosystem impacts and equity impacts, things like that. So a good example would be water, for example. And I think there's some debate within the climate tech world about whether water and water tech is part of climate tech. So as you think about the Climate Innovation Fund and Microsoft's climate strategy, do you include water within that or is it a separate thing? So Microsoft's climate strategy does include an emphasis on carbon as well as water, waste, and ecosystems. And all of them are either contributors to or impacts of climate change. Waste we see in terms of embodied carbon being another really direct pathway to decarbonization and carbon reduction. Water is the primary way that climate change and climate impacts are are mediated. And so um, we really see the two as, as intrinsically tied together. And then ecosystems, that really, you know, is related to climate in the sense of both the insights into climate, climate impacts, as well as the type of carbon sinks and nature-based solutions you mentioned earlier, Shale. All right. I want to talk about one more element of Microsoft's climate strategy that I think is uh, 
maybe not unique, but but rare and I think pretty interesting, which is that Microsoft um, has an internal carbon fee. It's basically a carbon price that is internal to the company. Can you talk about how that gets calculated and then how it manifests in decisions internally? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a key part of the carbon strategy that we that we started really a decade ago. And it's a structurally, it's a fee that touches every business group across Microsoft. And it's used to support green initiatives, including the carbon removal purchases that I mentioned a couple minutes ago. Um, so today, our carbon fee of $15 a ton, it supports the carbon removal that we then need to do for the areas that are beyond the scope of what we what we can reduce today. And we think that that's a really important way to both drive the, the measurement, the tracking of our, our carbon ledger, and then also to, to really tie our operational activities directly to the, the negative emission purchases we're making. That's interesting. So it's a $15 a ton internal carbon price. Now, you know, you mentioned that that, that goes in part to, to funding the carbon removal purchases that you make. You know, you can buy some carbon removals for $15 a ton. If you're buying, if you're on NCX, your portfolio company's platform, and you want to buy um, afforestation, avoided re- deforestation credits, that tends to fall into that price range. But if you're trying to do a Climeworks direct air capture carbon removal purchase, uh, order of magnitude more than that, plus probably 30 times more than that, potentially. So how do you think about what price you can pay for carbon removals, given the the fixed internal carbon price. Right. This is where this is where market development really comes into play. I mentioned a couple minutes ago that we're effectively building these markets from scratch. So carbon carbon removal, both nature-based and engineered, there's a you know, there's an emerging market around that with prices that range all over the map. As you said, some that would fit within within the carbon fee that we've levied. Uh, across our business groups, uh, and some that are much more expensive today. The way we see it is the the price comparison is really about the price at some point in time in the future, say 2030, vis-a-vis the the social cost of carbon or the cost of um, avoiding the worst effects of climate change. And so the way we see it is we need to act in the interim to build those markets and bring down those costs, especially for the expensive negative emissions solutions. So in addition to the fee that we use for procurement, the fund that we use to invest in new innovation, we've recently made a philanthropic commitment to Breakthrough Energy Catalyst. And that's really meant to address what we see as a remaining gap in the marketplace, the green premium that really needs to come down on a dramatically accelerated timescale. Right. So Breakthrough Energy Catalyst is this program. It's part of the the Breakthrough Energy um, family of, of different operations. But this is a relatively new one whose idea is sort of, it's specifically to try to get technologies whose costs can come down with scale and start to drive them down that scale path. So they talk about direct air capture as one example, along with things like green hydrogen and sustainable aviation fuels and uh I'm missing one. Oh, long duration energy storage. Right. So the idea there being this is like project capital, but it's probably 
it's probably not the same as the sort of early stage project capital you were describing before because it is at larger scale and doesn't expect the same kind of returns. Is that the idea? Yeah. So one of the things we've learned in the first uh, the first year and a half, almost two years now of the Climate Innovation Fund is that you need blended capital strategies. You need some you know, you need some investors who are mainstream investors, but you also need governments and even philanthropists and impact investors all working together to bring these solutions to market. And so with Catalyst, the huge opportunity that we see is to use that blended capital approach to combine philanthropy with investing and get these get these solutions to market. The type of um, scale up that we need to see in some of these uh, transformational technologies, we need to see adoption curves that meet or even exceed what we've seen in solar and wind and lithium ion. And so it's really meant to address that. And it also makes Microsoft, in addition to being a buyer and an investor in this space, it makes us a donor. And we think that that's an important mechanism and one that goes beyond the existing market tools we had previously. That's such an important point that you just made that we need to see adoption curves that are faster than what we saw in solar and wind and lithium ion batteries. Because I don't think people always appreciate how long those adoption curves have actually been in those technologies. Like, yes, over the last decade, there's been a pretty rapid scaling of those technologies. Still not fast enough, right? If you really want to decarbonize the power sector, let alone passenger vehicle transportation. Um, but they were gestating for a very long time before they even started to really hit that scale button. And, you know, things like direct air capture, which are much, much newer, if we want to get up to gigaton scale of direct air capture, that curve has to be much steeper, much faster. Right. And this this is where the science and the economic models, um, you know, they're really instructive because what we're seeing in this space is every single credible model showing how you achieve an IPCC one and a half degree scenario, they all include negative emissions technologies above and beyond land-based negative emissions technologies. And so what that means is that the science is telling us there's, there's a ticking clock that we need to bring these technologies to scale and to an affordable price point for the, for the market as a whole. Uh, and so what we see is that we need all these tools, the early demand, early capital, and also philanthropy to make that happen. So stepping back, um, Microsoft is clearly a leader in kind of being at the forefront of what does it mean to have a really serious, credible climate strategy? Um, I'd say there's a class of a few large enterprises that have taken it really seriously and done something innovative. And Microsoft is in that pack, if not at the front of that pack. But it's also clearly a pretty big endeavor internally, right? Because you have to have a team who knows all about carbon removal and is making those purchases. You have a team on the Climate Innovation Fund who is making direct investments and fund investments. You have a team that's doing project capital. You have a team calculating the internal carbon price and then figuring out how to apply it all across the organization. And I mean, one thing that I think a lot of enterprises are grappling with is how how much can they really dedicate to this? And is there a way to have a big impact, but perhaps not allocate the resource to it that Microsoft has been able to? And I, I'm sure you've talked to many other companies who are thinking about their own climate strategies. What is the advice that you usually give them on like, how do we, how do, we do an MVP version of what Microsoft has done? 
So what we're seeing inside of Microsoft really mirrors what's happening in the economy as a whole. We're seeing sustainability and climate go from the periphery to the core. You know, it touches every part of the of the economy now. And so at Microsoft, what we're seeing is that it's moving from the periphery to the core of the, the themes that we're emphasizing strategically. In terms of being able to make that playbook effectively available to others, we're really active in a number of partnerships and alliances with that, with that in mind. We've partnered with other uh, large leading companies on the Transform to Net Zero initiative. We're members of a range of alliances um, that partner us with uh, companies in the technology space, in the energy space, and elsewhere. And what we really need to do is we need to share the learnings, share the the strengths and weaknesses of the approach we've taken to date so we can help bring others along. I also think there's a role for those alliances to partly displace the in-house resources that every company would need to spin up on their own if they're all starting this from scratch. Um, and so it's really through our partnership strategy that we look to be able to bring others along in developing those type of, um, you know, robust climate commitments, robust programs to support the climate commitments. Because if we've learned something from, you know, the growth of corporate renewable purchases, it's that initially, you know, those who can afford to do this in-house are going to be the ones who, who go far and go fast early on. But what really makes the difference in terms of scale and actually transforming the whole market is when you can make that, make those tools available to everyone so that it's not dependent on being able to do it all in-house. All right. Uh, so final question for you. What comes next? You're now, what, a year and a half, a little more than a year and a half into this new endeavor with the Climate Innovation Fund and, and have made a bunch of announcements along the way. What's what's coming up next on the agenda? Yeah, so we used the early the early sort of first half of uh, of our program life to set up some foundational partnerships, um, really get the insight into the sector, into the science that can inform our investment strategy. And now, as we've as we've really hit our stride, we're making direct investments to support innovators and projects in this space. As we look ahead to what comes next, it's really about how do we go beyond what's going to transform Microsoft's own path to net zero and be about what we, um, you know, what we can bring to market that'll help our customers, industry as a whole, um, and really go quite global. And I think that that is going to depend upon some combination of first developing and deploying those insights from uh, carbon measurement, carbon accounting uh, as the enabling conditions, and then really use those to scale up climate solutions. The other, the other key element to consider is, you know, climate technologies don't exist in a vacuum. Ultimately, this is about the people and the communities that we're trying to, to protect. And so a continued emphasis on climate equity shifting from more of a thematic interest into a, a direct investment interest. That's a that's a second theme that's very much on the agenda for us today. Um, you know, lastly, as we're looking, as we're looking beyond our four walls, really defining the types of partnerships that can change change markets, 
you mentioned forest carbon earlier. Digital innovation is going to be what what scales up and drives down cost in that space. At the same time, for something like engineered carbon removal, you need both the hardware innovation and the digital innovation, and then new buyers and new investors and donors. So I think starting to look beyond this as its own standalone function and say, how does it inform our advocacy, our own operational activities, and so on. All right. Well, we'll check back in in another year and a half then and and see how all that went. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining. Great. Thanks, Shell. Brandon Middaw is the director of Microsoft's Climate Innovation Fund. Well, you know, we get a lot of feedback. We always ask for feedback at the end of these episodes, and some of you oblige, which we appreciate. So our intrepid producer, Daniel Waldorf, pulled a couple of quotes from recent reviews that we've gotten. Let's see. On Twitter, oh, Nat Bullard, who's a friend of mine and works at Bloomberg New Energy Finance and a former Interchange guest himself, said uh, about the episode that we did this month with the two founders of the Climate Tech VC newsletter, Kim Zhu and Sophie Purdom, he said, quote, the two great tastes that go great together of climate tech. Uh, Nat, that's got to be a reference to some food motto, but I can't tell you what it is. Two great tastes that go great together. Was that like an ad for peanut butter and jelly at some point? You're going to have to, you're going to have to text me and tell me. All right. uh, Some more feedback uh, on Apple Podcasts. Nimbus 2000 guy, good name, says, quote, a good balance of accessible and wonky. Well, we got to work on that needs a little more wonk probably anyway let us know what you think is your review as glowing as nimbus 2000 guys or as weird as nat bullard's um are the episodes missing the mark let us know either way leave us a review tweet at us at at interchange show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com the interchange is produced by postscript audio our producers are daniel waldorf and delvin abuaji and Stephen lacy I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange.